Hello and welcome back to the second instalment of Sasta this week with me, your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat and coming from Sasta HQ and the main man Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now for the show today, I'm very excited to say a fellow Brit is joining me in the hot seat. So on the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Matt Ellis, founder and CEO at Cloudability, the startup that provides cloud cost efficiency at scale. And they've raised close to 40 million in VC funding, including from our good friends at Foundry Group and Data Collective. As for Matt, prior to Cloudability, Matt held executive positions within four startups and key technology roles at Frito-Lay, Pepsi-Cola and Goldman Sachs. And he currently sits on the boards of the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network and the Technology Association of Oregon. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Michael Driscoll at Metamarkets for the intro to Matt today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SaaS to podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash sasta with the coupon code sasta podcast that's algolia.com forward slash sasta however enough from me so i'm now delighted to hand over to matt ellis founder and ceo at cloudability good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Matt, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, and a huge thanks to Mike at Metamarkets for the introduction. But thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. It's good to be here. Now, I'd love to get started today, though, by discussing a bit about you and how you made your way into SaaS and came to found Cloudability. Well, I was lucky enough to work with a chap by the name of Flo Liebert, who's now the founder and CEO of Mesosphere. And we were both working together at an ad tech company back in 08, 09. And to scale what we were doing, we turned to the cloud. And he taught me pretty much everything I knew about the cloud at the time. And I went to go start my next business. I was going to be in ad tech, big data. I was doing cloud consultancy to pay the bill. And everyone I got on the cloud complained about their bill. So I wrote Cloudability to stop them from complaining. It wasn't called Cloudability. And when it broke, my voicemail filled up. And when I spoke to my customers about why they were so angry at the loss of this free service, I realized how powerful Cloud was and how long-term of a change it was. And I diverted all my attentions into Cloudability. And here we are six years later with 100 employees. Can I ask, was that a real sign of early product market fit to you then when there was this tangible need when it broke? Yes. So we were using it almost as a lifeboat. It was, uh, we couldn't get to done what we needed to get done without it. So we accepted all the limitations and costs. Two years later, when I was helping people move onto the cloud, they were using it for agility and speed and their urgency. One CFO, she said, we're going at speed at night and you have turned out the lights. And if I keep going, I'm going to run into something, a massive spend, overspend. And if I stop, someone's going to run into me, which is my competitor. And that was when I realized it was about speed and agility. Later on, as it's matured, it's become much more cost effective. But at the time, it was about business capability. And you mentioned there about your 100 employees, uh, incredible success on the scaling. So huge congratulations for that. Thank you. But I do want to discuss the scaling of Cloudability. Uh, And so on that, I'd love to hear how you've seen and witnessed then elements change within the business when moving from, say, 30 to 80 and then 80 to present day. And the inherent challenges that you've maybe faced in these uh, strategic inflection points. 
Yes, so this is not my first time of going through a high growth or high restriction. This is my fifth startup. The first two were turnarounds where we came in to help the business survive and had to cut many members of staff. And the second two were very high growth where we went from 25 to 300 employees in just a couple of years. And it's been fascinating watching things that change at certain levels of a scale of interpersonal relationships. The first one is around 30, 25 to 35 employees. And up to that point, as the CEO, you are keeping down any problems in relationships. There may be two people who just don't like each other, and you can intervene and make sure they behave. And at 35 people, you are so busy growing the business and running things that you just can't keep on that, and suddenly it erupts. And you forgot about it was that bad, or you underestimated it, and these two people have created two factions in, in their group. And in one way or the other, it's really getting in the way of you growing your business. I'm super intrigued. You said there about kind of the interpersonal relationships. Is that the point when you hired your head of people or head of HR? I recently had Matt Strauss at Namely on the show. I'd love to hear when right. you think the inflection point is for hiring your, your first head of HR. Well, then there's a level at around 75 to 80 people. I've forgotten there's a name for it, like Logan's number or something. But it's the number of meaningful relationships you can have before people start popping out of your head. You just don't remember who they are. Dunbar. And so Dunbar's number, that's right. Mm. And I remember the first time I was, I, I, there was times when I would see people around the, the office and I go, who's that? But then it started to happen that I get in the elevator and there'd be people in the elevator who knew me, but I didn't know who they were. And that's around Dunbar's number. And so at that point, you have to build a layer by then, you have to have a layer of directors. People think it's all about the executives, but the directors are the people who are like your NCOs. They're the ones who are out on the battlefield directing your troops, making sure that they're properly fed and, and, and looked after, but being effective. And the people ops, we don't have an HR. We call it people ops. I think there's two ways to do HR. There's a kind of prescriptive way and there's a kind of supporting way. And we believe the best way is a supporting way where you, you don't say this is how you must interview. You train your managers on interview techniques and you kind of let them experiment to a degree, but you collect data so you can share the wins with other groups. And so we hired people ops at about 50 people because we just felt that there was enough work around personal development, onboarding, and a few policies that just we could help managers with some tools and some processes that just let them do their work better. And we also had a very strong sales hiring goal. So you hire 10 or 20 sales people in a six-month period, you need to have some kind of process. So at that point, the people ops person was a great investment. And, and, and actually, we, we underestimated the benefits of it because there's been other things. For example, there are memes that go around a company. And particularly when you get towards Dunbar's number, these memes can, in the absence of facts, can become reality. And some of them are true and some of them aren't true. And with a good people ops and personal team, you can surface these memes. So at the next all hands, we can go, well, I've been hearing that people have said X. Like, for example, well, our hiring isn't diverse enough. Well, here's some data. And we're going to keep reporting back on this data to show you that either we are or we're getting better at it. That's something I didn't expect to get out of people ops. It was all about the operating system and not about the kind of another channel for people's happiness and what they really need. And you can have blind spots on that as a CEO. It's just too easy to think that everyone is aligned with how you see the world. You just hit on a golden nugget there for me in terms of the people ops and the structuring of a sales team when you're building to say 20 in six months, as you said there. I'm really intrigued. Mm -hmm. You said about the sales process in, in building that up. What did that look like mm -hmm. for you and, and kind of how you'd advise others? Well, the first thing was to get into place good directors. So if your VP is hiring all 
20, 30 people, then you're not going to meet your goal. We did a couple of internal promotions. Uh, we hired a couple of people from outside. And um, together, we had this crack squad of people who will one day be very successful yeah, SVPs of sales and CEOs. And then the executive focused on, on driving those guys, those people to go off and hire uh, and supported with a, a very clean and clear process for who you could hire and what we're going to pay them and what we're looking for. For example, we acquire for, our, for before you could hire someone to write down what their first 90 days are going to look like. And if you can't do that succinctly and crisply, then probably you might be hiring the wrong person. It gave a great feeling of momentum to the hiring and it made it a lot easier to quickly say yes or no to good candidates. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, in terms of, you said there about hiring from within and then also hiring externally. I'm intrigued, mm-hmm. how quickly do you upgrade then a VP or team member? And, and how long do you give them to stretch? So that's a really interesting topic. And I think that many people who start a seed funded company, their VPs would be people they've worked with before who have often not been a VP before, but who are reliable, sound, hardworking and quick learners. And at some point you go from that type of person who you can lean on, who's a good jack of all trades to the best person in America or the best person in the country to work for your startup today. And making that jump is tricky because personally, I have a lot of loyalty to people I've worked with over many years, to people who are like the booster rockets for the company and it's a difficult transition of when you go you have done such hard work and you've been such a critical person but at this stage i need someone who's done it at a bigger scale or who's a lower risk because they've done it before that's really challenging do you think some but, people, um, do you think some people are destined for certain elements of the journey say the 30 person element or the 80 person yes element? harvard business school disclaimer i have no formal education but people who enter harvard business school tell me that they have this lovely metaphor of, you know, the people who take the beach are the Green Berets or the SAS. But if you leave them on the beach too long, they start killing the penguins. So now you have to put the Marines who take the island. And they're not so crazy. They, they'll go around a hill if the enemy is entrenched. But once the hill, the, the, the island is taken, now you need a police officer to give you a ticket for a bull tire. And there does seem to be a characteristic of a person who hates doing the same job every day, who delights in a new challenge, who's ready to face impossible odds versus someone who's building sustainable systems, who don't actually do any work themselves, but do it through other people. So it's very scalable. And there is a change of mindset. It does seem that zero to 30, 30 to 300 and over 300 are different, different characters. I have seen people successfully make the transition, but as a whole, I think that they're kind of roles at those different levels of company. And we've seen it with other companies in Portland, where we're based, where these companies have grown up and the rock stars from that org have kind of all left at around the same time going it's not fun anymore Mm-hmm. No, that makes absolute sense. I mean, one internal structural point that I'd love to pick up with you and is very kind of poignant today in today's environment is the COO element, obviously with Travis at Uber looking for a COO. I'd love to touch on the COO role with you because Cloudability have Peter. Um, so talk to me about this. Can we all recruit a COO early? When, when was the right timing? So first of all, Peter is like a co-founder who's been in many different roles. So whilst I was off building the product and raising money, Peter was off running the business and running our sales team. Clear differentiation. So yeah, so so he was basically making the trains run on time, and I was making sure there were trains to run. That was a 13-year partnership. It was our third business together. So it really was much easier for us to kind of divvy the business up like that, and that's fairly atypical. There's a great article in the Harvard Business Review last month about the often 
misunderstood role of the COO. And it's very easy as a, the early founder to kind of delegate the bits you don't want to do to some other guy. Whereas what you're trying to do is have someone who's just in your face every day asking what's going on. More data, uh, joining up the dots, making sure that teams are communicating with each other and, and just making sure that the efficiency of the, of the circulation of information in the company is accurate. And it could be a CFO. They're, they're pretty much the same type of person. That just A CFO is a little bit more focused on the money. The CEO is a little bit more focused on the commercial. But it's kind of the same thing at that early stage. I, I do want to continue on the on the scaling and the growth element, though, right. uh, and discussing the transitions, because I'd love to hear how you assess scale versus growth. I've had the likes of Eric right. at Zoom on the show recently, and he said about the yeah. importance of sustainable growth. How do you right. balance this very tough line? Yes, it is. And we've got it wrong. I mean, we've <laughs> definitely got it wrong. I love Pretty the fact about company... Brits. Brits are always honest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're handsome and charming too, we're, we're, and, and modest. We have got that wrong at every company I've been at. But I do think that if you are on the side of too scalable, you're just much slower than your competitors. So I think you have to take some risks around scale and try and scale through people early on versus trying to make everything a system from the start. We have we see scale as growth is if you take a 10-year-old boy and grow him overnight to be 20 years old, but without changing his clothes, he's grown, but he hasn't scaled. You've got to change the clothes, which is the systems and support systems around it. And basically, we try and do that three to six months too late. So when we start to feel like we had a point where we were having trouble getting all of our invoices out in a single month because the person doing it had so much work to do. So we quickly hired another person to help them. And then we wrote some systems to make the data transformation they were doing just happen automatically. Now, we did not automate the whole bill running process. We automated the really fiddly bit that the humans were doing so that the humans involved could just get to a bill more quickly. And then we went back to building our product out. And I would love to say to you that our invoice production is completely automatic, but it's not, and it probably won't be this year because there's so many other things that provide more value for the business. As CEO, I've been guilty of ignoring the complaints from my staff when they're telling me there's too much boring work to do and saying, I'm going to go build a feature instead. And I I think you just got to be aware of that, that tendency and just correct it 20% off it and try and do a little bit every day and treat it like technical debt, that there's just something you do in every release that helps scale. And eventually, I think you can get there. Can I ask, with the knowledge of being three to six months out of date continuously, how does that affect yes. your thought process on getting ahead of the curve for the next one? So how do you look to rectify that kind of misalignment? Well, as I said, for scale, for behind the scenes, the back office, I think we just accept that we're going to be that way. And the, the trade-off is, is that we can be three to six months ahead on the product that our customers are using. But I'd, I'd love to dive into one of my favorite elements of the show, which is the quick fire round. And Matt's 60 seconds faster. This is just for you, Matt. So right. 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Good. What's the big advice on pricing? Change it all the time. Iterate, iterate, iterate. And don't put that off. It's very hard. It's very easy to not experiment with your pricing because you're worried about what your customers might think. It's constantly changing. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning about about running a SaaS startup, about uh, oh. incentivizing people, about pricing, about fundraising, really anything oh. about kind of running a SaaS startup? Your earliest users are your biggest supporters. They're the people who want to see you succeed and they can do a lot more for you. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? Thomas Tungus's blog posts. 
Yeah, they are fantastic. They're always a must-read for me, too. What was your mm-hmm. aha moment for product market fit? In 2015, we went to reInvent. There were 400 uh, sessions, and you type into the session finder the word cost, and 10 sessions came out. In 2016, there were 630. You type the word cost, and 140 came out. And then I knew that the market had, was ready to deal with the problem of managing your cloud spending. What do you think has been the most challenging element of running Cloudability to date? Balancing the need to keep up with the market, that you have 10 new customers a week all asking for stuff, and dealing with the more important parts of scaling your business. We took too many customers on early on and nearly choked on the high growth. Customer success, how central is it for you? You said about a lot of customers quickly there. How central is customer success to you? My co-founder runs it. Absolutely. I I mean, yeah, it's, it's core. It's adoption of the product, keeping your customers happy, understanding what they need. It is fundamental to SaaS. And then kind of speaking of the scaling there with the customers quickly and moving out of the quick fire, I do want to discuss an element that's often hailed to me as the most challenging in terms of scaling, and that is the culture maintenance element. So talk to me about right. this and with the unbelievable scaling that you've seen in terms of the team and the product and the funding, uh, I'd love to hear how you've looked to maintain and then carve out that culture that you have at Cloudability. Well, first of all, I think you have to be very clear about what your culture is. And I think that it's easy to read a bunch of articles and say, this is the culture that we want. But culture is what you do when no one's looking. And it starts at the top. Your leaders are held to a much higher standard than anybody else, because even the slightest transgression on culture is magnified all the way down through the org. And then you have to say, I'm going to be consistent on this. And it's important. So, for example, if you go, it's in our culture, there are no assholes, then you have to fire big performers who are assholes. You have to fire people who are getting the work done for a values violation. And if you're saying, oh, well, performance matches all, then you have to be ready to deal with all of the politics that come from someone who's an asshole, but is a key contributor. And I think that's the hardest thing and it's been the most important thing at Cloudability. If you look at our store, um, our staff love working here. They know exactly where they stand, and uh, we've had to spend a lot of time and effort, even as an e-team, making sure that we um, are aligned on values, aligned on culture, and that we're holding each other accountable, that even the the most junior person in the company, if we have a a meeting room booked and I'm overstaying the time, they should feel comfortable to walk into the room and throw me out of it. Absolutely. Because if we can hold them accountable, that's what you do. That's how you behave. So that's the hardest thing, and it's my almost my full-time job now is policing that. Matt, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. As I said, I heard such wonderful things from Mike. So I can't thank you enough for coming on and for revealing the incredible scaling journey, as I said there, of Cloudability. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. And again, I want to say a huge thanks to Matt for giving up his time today to come on the show. So fantastic to hear his incredible journey with Cloudability. And again, if you love the show today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or you can follow the main man on Twitter, Jason Lemkin at JasonLK. I know we'd both absolutely love to see you on both respective platforms. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. 
Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next Monday's episode.